Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. The purpose of Pedagogue is to promote diverse voices at various institutions and help foster community and collaboration among teachers of writing. Each episode is a conversation with a teacher or multiple teachers about their experiences teaching writing, their work, inspirations, assignments, assessments, successes, and challenges. You can find us online at pedagogpodcast.com. And if you have just a second, please subscribe or follow along on whatever platform you're listening on so you can get all the newest episodes as soon as they are released. In this episode, I talk with Steph Sarasso about sensory rhetorics and sound studies, multimodality and multimodal listening, and why sonic education matters in the 21st century. Steph Sarasso is an associate professor of digital writing and rhetoric at the University of Virginia. Her 2018 book, Sounding Composition, Multimodal Pedagogies for Embodied Listening, proposes an expansive approach to teaching with sound in the composition classroom. Sarasso has published scholarship in journals such as Rhetoric Society Quarterly, College English, Composition Studies, Enculturation, and Patho. Her most recent project, Sound Never Tasted So Good, explores the relationship among writing, sound, rhetoric, and food. Steph, thanks so much for joining us. Your teaching and research interests include multimodality, digital rhetoric, sensory rhetorics, and sound studies. Can you talk about what your pedagogy looks like? What are your, or what are some of your pedagogical values? What does it mean to take a sound studies approach to teaching writing? Sure. Well, first of all, so thank you so much for having me. And, and But I like that you asked the question about the sound studies approach. And, and I first want to just say, like, I'm a little, a little hesitant to call it a sound studies approach to teaching writing because there's such a long history of scholarship on sound and, and rhetoric and composition, right, um, that predates the emergence of, of sound studies as a discipline. So I want to make sure I'm giving that disciplinary history credit. I, I think what sound studies adds to my thinking about sound as a teacher is a focus on the body, the senses on affect. Um, So in my classes, students aren't just treating sound as like an audible text or sonic content, but as this kind of holistic multi-sensory experience. So a big part of my pedagogy involves getting students to think about how their bodily experiences shape the ways they they interact with and compose texts and and different kinds of experiences of all all kinds. And I guess pedagogically in terms of values, I I would obviously value embodied experience and hands-on learning activities. Um, And also experimentation. I love having students treat the act of composing as a kind of inquiry, right? Whether they're using text or audio or video. For me, composition is always about the process. Having students, you know, learn what they think about something along the way, as opposed to, you know, knowing what their project or argument is going to look like before they even start. Um, For me, I I love that the process of discovery in terms of composing um, whatever audio projects or video projects they're doing. Um, So that's that's a really important thing for me is this this idea of inquiry. What kinds of activities or multimodal assignments and technologies do you use in the writing classroom? And maybe you could talk to me a little bit more about kind of students' initial reactions to these multimodal assignments, and then maybe their reflections at the end of the semester or afterwards after they participated in this kind of multimodal composing process. Sure. So let me let me break that question apart. So the technology part, I'll start with that one. For technology, I'm, I'm super DIY. I, I encourage students to use whatever talk, technologies they have access to to complete an assignment. 
Um, so I don't hold instructional classes where I walk them through, you know, how to use an audio or video uh, editor, uh, for instance. Um, I do provide them with a lot of free resources. And of course, I'm there for help, for additional help if they need it. But I first always ask them to try to figure things out on their own through tinkering and experimentation. And so one like little thing I do is a like, I, I tend to do a lot of mini assignments to help them learn like certain functions of a program. Um, so for example, if I want them to practice sound design or manipulating different kinds of sounds, I might ask them to record themselves like cooking their favorite recipe. Um, and that might just be like microwaving ramen in their dorm, right? But the goal is to get them to learn to enhance the cooking sounds in, in an audio editor in ways that allow the listener to feel like they're going through that sensory experience with them. And so like just little tiny activities like that along the way, rather than here's a class about how to use Audacity, it's just an audio editor, or I mean, most students are very good at, at picking this stuff up on their own anyway. And there a lot of them are better than me at certain kinds of technologies. But I find that this approach is important because digital tools and platforms are always changing anyway, right? So it's more valuable for students to learn how to learn for themselves. Um, you know, how do you figure out a technology you've never used before? And that's the thing they're going to have to figure out their whole lives, right? <laughs> because technology is going to constantly change. So I think it's better than sort of a simple step-by-step, -step, here's how to use this technology to do that, like kind of figure it out, experiment with it, develop some habits and practices that help you learn new technologies on your own. Um, because this this stuff might not or it might look totally different or it might not even be available right in a couple of years. So um, I think that's a, kind of a more value valuable practice um, about the example assignment. Um, there's so many, uh, but I'll just talk about what I'm thinking about right now, which is uh, this fall I'm teaching a class at UVA called Writing with Sound, um, where students collaboratively produce a multiple episode podcast. And sometimes it's on a topic they they want to do, and other times it's like we have this opportunity this semester to do a podcast series on the new memorial to enslaved laborers at UVA. It's the first time we're all physically back on campus with this huge new memorial that's really significant. Um, so students are gonna be working on that. Um, and this is, I guess this example is typical of the kinds of assignments with audio that I do. So I'll, I'll kind of walk you through a few things. Like instead of just having them dive into research or audio production, I always spend the first few weeks of the, of the class talking about listening and actually practicing listening with students. Um, we take sound walks around campus and think about, you know, what stories the sounds are telling us about this place or how they're, they're making us feel. During listening exercises or experiences, I ask them to think about their identities and bodies, not just their sensory experiences, but, you know, how their race or gender, ethnicity, et cetera, might affect the ways that they're listening to other people's stories or how they interview people. So really, really thinking about listening, not just in terms of like, what other people are saying or what, uh, you know, what sounds they're hearing and trying to make meaning of those sounds, but it's trying to cultivate a particular kind of attunement, right, to the sonic world and learning to listen to other people beyond just hearing what they're saying. And I think a lot of times there's a tendency when, when you teach an audio project, you just want to get to it. You want to get to the technology part. You want to get to creating this, this sonic project. But for me, like those first few weeks are really uh, an opportunity to get students to kind of question their own listening practices and to really become better listeners. It's not just something that we do on our own. Um, it is a learned practice. And so I really try to emphasize that in, in any assignment that involves audio, especially. Okay, um, so students sometimes initially react with a little bit of hesitancy or confusion. Um, like I signed up for a podcast class and now I'm walking around campus in a meditative state, right? Like what, am, what is going on? But afterwards, I've, I've had many students tell me how much more sensitive they are to the ways that sounds shape their experiences and their everyday lives. 
um, to like to the ways that sonic rhetorics are working in the world. But I think they're also more conscious of thinking about digital work like a podcast um, as a multi-sensory experience as opposed to just content. Um, so I think talking about the body and the senses in relation to digital production and, and multimodality helps students become more savvy, like designers and consumers of text, uh, treating them you know, as, as holistic experiences or, rather than just information, but also just more sensitive listeners in any situation. And I, I think that's a really valuable thing. Steph, how did you get into this work? What led you to focus on sonic composing practices and you know, having students record their cooking habits and having them walk around campus paying attention to sound. You know, I, I imagine most people don't think of sonic rhetorics and sensory rhetorics when they think about teaching writing or when they hear you say that you're a writing teacher. Yeah, great question. Um, so I think it's hard to answer because I've always been sort of interested in sound and music since I was a little kid. So the interest was already there but when I started grad school at Pitt, um, multimodal and digital approaches just started gaining a lot of traction in the field at that moment. And that was really exciting to me. But also sound studies as a discipline sort of exploded like across the disciplines. It just happened to be at this, the timing of these two things sort of made it possible to write a relevant dissertation about sound and listening. And the professors I worked with at Pitt encouraged me to, to experiment with sound in my research and teaching when it was not yet the norm in the field. Um, so I feel really grateful that I was in the right place at the right time when that sort of happened. But I think um, what kept, I mean, I was interested in it and and just being able to teach uh, at Pitt, like as a graduate student, try out a few experiments with sound in the classroom. I just saw the kind of reactions from students and, the, and so, so these kinds of experiments were so meaningful and the work was so great and they were so interested. It just made me want to keep researching um, and, and sort of writing about this and, and figuring out, you know, what does a sound-based pedagogy look like? And a lot of it, I think it, in, in many ways, my research is, is very much driven by my interactions with students and the, and the classroom experiences I've had. So you said you were really interested in music as a kid. And, and now I'm wondering if there was a moment in grad school that, that led you back to some memory as a kid listening to music, or was there an album or artist that sort of inspired you to bring sound and embodied listening into the classroom as a graduate student? I don't I don't think I can pinpoint like an exact moment or experience in when I was younger, um, but I was always around music. Uh, you know, my parents were really big music fans. And so there was always mu music around. My brother's a musician. And so I was always interested in, the, in sort of just like listening. And I love spending hours, you know, listening to albums um, which doesn't really happen much anymore. And I, you know, but I, I feel like that sort of sensitivity to music. And, and also it was, in, I was a teenager in the nineties, right. Where like grunge, all the concerts and just the experiences of that era, I think made a huge mark on me. Um, but in terms of the embodied stuff, I, I think the, the thing that really pushed me over the edge in graduate school was, was seeing the documentary, Touch the Sound um, that features deaf percussionist Evelyn Glenny, right? And just that, as soon as I, as soon as I watched it and finished watching that, I knew I was going to write about it. Like immediately, I was like, "This is one." I basically changed my entire trajectory in graduate school because I was going to do something with digital media and multimodality. I, and I always liked sound stuff, but I, I until I saw that early in my in my graduate career, I it just like totally transformed everything that I thought about listening and made me just 
think about sound in an entirely different way. So I knew that that was something and I, and I became sort of obsessed, like Evelyn Glennie played in Pittsburgh and I, st- I, tr- I tracked her down and like got her to agree to an interview. And I mean, it was like, it was an obsession for a while. And I think that's sort of what drove the dissertation work and that eventually turned into the book. But yeah, I think it's hard to pinpoint, you know, a specific experience in youth, but I've always had just been very interested in, in listening, um, to, to music and just being a very sensitive listener, I think in general and hearing other people's stories. So it just made sense to sort of pursue this kind of work. In your book, Sounding Composition and an article written in 2014 uh, called Reeducating the Senses, you offer multimodal listening to quote, expand how we think about and practice listening as a situated full bodied act, which can help students develop a deeper understanding of how sound is manipulating their feelings or behaviors in different situations, end quote. Do you mind talking more about the affordances of centering multimodal listening in composition classes? Definitely. Um, So I've already kind of talked about, you know, how multimodal listening can help students design multimodal texts or experiences that appeal to multiple senses. So for me, multimodal listening is really about kind of sensory education, Um, And I think in a way, you know, it helps students produce more immersive and compelling projects by, by really thinking about like, how is this not, not just the ideas, how, you know, how is this whole text or experience going to engage an audience at the level of the body? Um, So that's, that's one on the one hand, on the other hand, I think that focusing on listening as a practice that, that involves more than the ears or hearing makes students really conscious of accessibility from the get-go. Um, so in my classes, students are asked to think about, you know, the various ways that audiences with a range of, of bodily or sensory capacities might engage with their work. Like, so for instance, the audio projects I assign often include, or I, I always include transcripts that describe like non-discursive sound in vivid detail. And that's that's a practice in itself that, that students have to get good at. And it's a writing practice that's involved. They also sometimes include images or video along with their podcasts. So things that you might see on, like a lot of professional podcasts have like extras on their websites that you can, so they that's just um, always included in the kind of uh, audio storytelling that I have students doing, because it allows different people to interact with their research or storytelling beyond hearing. Um, so centering multimodal listening is essentially centering inclusivity and accessibility, right, in composition courses, in, in, to my mind. Seth, this is my last question. In your introduction to sounding composition, you talk about why sonic education matters, and I thought we could end our conversation there. You mentioned the affordances of, of multimodal listening to rec comp and how this work complements some of our disciplinary values. What else does sonic education add to our understandings of teaching writing? And why does sonic education matter in our 21st century cultural and political moment? Great questions. In terms of rhetoric and composition, what I think multimodal listening and sort of the sonic education, at least the, the kind that I'm talking about here, contributes to sort of ideas about multimodality more broadly and and how we think about it and there's already you know we're already constantly expanding this idea this idea of multimodality in the field right with Jody Shipka's work and others um that it's not just about the digital but it's just it's also not just about meaning making and sort of just treating other kinds of modes like audio or video um, as another kind of text and so really moving beyond simply alphabetic text 
and thinking about listening in or listening and multimodality more broadly in in relation to the senses like what does a more sensorially rich multimodal approach look like and that's what i'm sort of after in all of my work um in terms of you know what why does sonic education matter in the 21st century right i talk about in the book uh strategically designed sound is showing up in more and more places right coffee shops baseball stadiums grocery stores, restaurants, museums, like you could just go on and on. And, and there's a lot of money and time being spent sort of figuring out how to manipulate people with sound. Um, so much of this is, is intended to manipulate our behaviors and experiences like making us wanna buy more, move through a space in a certain way. So being more conscious of not only what sound means, but how it, how it works and affects people, right? In different contexts can make us more sensitive um, critical listeners in just everyday life. And I think that's a big part of the education, even in, in rhetoric and composition, when I do this work, it, students are always telling me about how they're using it in their everyday lives, which is, is sort of the ultimate goal. But more importantly, I think sonic education and, and listening in particular is crucially important in our current cultural and political moment. Multimodal listening's emphasis on highly contextual embodied experiences, right, provides a kind of reflective approach to listening to and for difference, whether that difference is race, gender, ability, sexuality, uh, anything related to identity. Multimodal listening encourages us to pay attention not just to what a person is saying, but to the person as a body in the world with particular perspectives and experiences, right? And I think, and this sounds naive, but I think at its best, listening can lead to, to genuine understanding and empathy um, and th these kinds of approaches. And again, it's not something that we talk about or learn about in school very often. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for people who center sort of multimodal approaches to use listening um, as a way to cultivate this kind of attunement, not only to the sonic world, but just to, to listening in general to other people. You know, there's already some amazing work on listening in the field, like Krista Radcliffe's rhetorical listening. And I hope this area continues to grow. Like, I'd love to see more listening happening in our classrooms and research, especially in relation to cultural rhetorics. To me, it feels like an urgent need, both in the field and, and in the world we live in right now. Thanks, Steph. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.